This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a comedian and a musician that has been seen on Comedy Central and the National Lampoon Network. She tours the U.S. at theaters, churches, and conferences. Coming up is the fabulously funny Amy Barnes. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hello. Thanks for having me. You work all the time, but you're working in places that are not always traditionally like publicized because sometimes they're a private event, a corporate event, a church event, a, a women's group. So you're in the funny business and doing funny in the daytime probably more than anybody I know. Do you do those kinds of women's conferences at lunches and things? Well, I, I did last week, but I don't typically perform during the day. It was just that last week I was in Kansas City and they do this women's conference, the Advent Health System there puts on a big women's conference. And these things happen around the country. I was not aware of them before I got the first phone call, but they get over a thousand women come out to hear speakers and do breakout sessions and just be encouraged in general. And there's so much fun. So that was what was happening in Kansas City last week. And I've done several things similar to that. So it wasn't something that I went looking for. But man, the older I get, the more I appreciate a daytime show. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's like when we used to do Vegas and you had to do three shows and the last one was at midnight. I don't even think I could do it anymore. That is a funny swing. It, it is different. And finding comedy where you can evolve into places where the audience is appropriate for you. We don't want to go to Branson and do kid shows. Comedy wise, I think that's one of the very best things that ever happened to me was coming to the point where I was okay with my audience, not feeling like I had to be everything to everybody, but saying, you know, I I feel like I really relate to this particular group of people and I'm going to be okay if that's who's sitting in the crowd. I do still do general audience shows and everybody is always welcome, but I do these ladies night out events and it's just a lot of fun. It's just a, it's a very different atmosphere. And I think that you've probably had this experience, but just when you come to that place in your comedy career where you're like, I'm okay saying that these are my people and that's who I know how to talk to. So I think I'm there. Well, I think the other thing is you do speak about so many women's topics because you have been a daughter and a mother and a wife and you have all of the aspects covered in a way and you do it in such a funny way that the relating you know these are bull, bullseyes on the target. It's not quite the same. The husband may laugh at it, but not quite as deeply as the wife does. Probably, yeah. And I, I notice when you know they're out together that a lot of times they will look at each other before they laugh to check with one another and see if it's okay that they're laughing at something. Whereas if you get rid of the partner, whichever one it is, it's they're a little bit quicker to lighten up, I think. From what you see, you see people nudging people. Nudges are a big thing like, that's you, Bob. 
when it comes to comedy, you know, we're really, everybody knows what all the research says about how important it is to laugh and how good that is for our health and the muscles. But I think one thing that is sort of neglected in that conversation is how much it builds community. When you put people in the same room, the things that they laugh at are the things they realize, oh, I noticed that too and didn't see it that way. You hear someone else laughing across the room at the same thing and you realize, oh, we have this in common. And it builds community in sort of an unconscious way where all of the, you know, the New York Times articles we're reading right now are about this epidemic of loneliness that we're living through in this country, especially post-COVID when we were all locked away. And the greater purpose of it now is a way to build connection and community. And there's just so many positive reasons to do it. So I'm hoping that people see that too and will come out just for that reason. Yeah. And what you're actually tipping into here is the contagiousness of the human experience together. Yes. Because everybody's moved into this Netflix binging and watching on their phone. And yes, those things can be funny and they can make you have a laugh. But when you laugh while other people are laughing and when it's spontaneous group laughter, I mean, when we came back from pandemic and started regularly being on the boards again, the audience appreciated it. I appreciated it. We missed that very sense of community you're talking about because it, it's the human condition of, oh, I relate to that because it's me or that's my brother or I have to tell my sister this joke. There's so much um, give and take. And it happens, you do it twofold because it happens in music and it happens in comedy. What does the music do in terms of lifting up the humor? Oh, well, you know, my husband, who's a perpetual showman, is always telling me it's production value, Amy. It's production value, right? (laughs) Like it adds something to the show that maybe someone else can't do. And so for him, it's like, you know, he would like to see maybe the plate spinning, tap dancing joke telling (laughs) Amy. The fun thing about that is I think that people, that is something that they all have in common. You very rarely come across someone who says, I hate music. I do this part of my show that I call... Amy ruins popular songs by pointing out troubling lyrics, right? So I just do a song that they know and we stop and we discuss it like throughout. And which is one of the easiest things I do because it's so easy to pull a song out that almost everybody knows and has heard and you instantly have something that they have in common. It's a fun part of the show. Though I tell people the way that I started doing it was not, it wasn't intentional. Like I thought I was going to be a musical comic when I was starting out in comedy, I was in Seattle and I was like the only female doing comedy at the time. And so I was getting opportunities that maybe I didn't deserve, but just because I was, you know, the only one. So like Paula Poundstone would come to town and they'd want a female opener. And so Amy mm-hmm. get the job, but I didn't really have the time to fill. I was going to these open mics. I was still working at, um, during the daytime as an engineer. I had like an actual job, right? And I would go to an open mic and see like, what are other people doing? You know, I, I got to get some material. And there was this guy that would come to the open mic and he would tell a bunch of new jokes. And if they didn't work, he would come to the next open mic with his guitar and he would just play the guitar and sing the same jokes that he had. (laughs) And because when you finish a song, people have no choice but to applaud. Uh (laughs) You finish with an applause break, no matter what you have sung when you stop playing. And so that's how I started doing music in my show. I was like, this, I can do this. I play the piano. Right. Um, and then I wrote a song about dating a guy who had leprosy. And then that got me my first Montreal and comedy. Okay. Uh, the, and the dating a guy with leprosy was based on a true story? 
<laughs> no. That was when Amy learned really early on, like people have things to say about what you say on stage. Was there backlash from leprosy colonies? Well, not colonies. But people with conditions of some kind. No, no, no. I mean, can you imagine there's people with leprosy who find my obscure little comedy in the Seattle corner of the world? No. And to be fair, you know, I was pretty young at the time. And um, there was a woman, she was like a Canadian newscaster or something. And apparently she ran a nonprofit that benefited lepers. You know, <laughs> it was a funny conversation. and But that was when I learned, I think, really early on, you got to make some choices when you're going to be on stage and have a platform and you can, and not that I think I, I was doing anything that was really particularly hurtful to anyone, but I, it was a turning point for me, I think, where I started to think harder about just the power of words and to really think about, can I use this? You know, can you point out funny things and not also hurt people? No, no, that's a, that's an important part of a mission statement because when you are younger and I was that way, you're very flip and everything is, oh, it's just funny. I'm just kidding. Your attitude is a little bit more willy-nilly when you're younger. And I know that you're a faith-forward comic and you're that you speak with churches. And, and I think we all learn a responsibility. I had it uh, with the word retarded at one point because everybody rampantly said that when we were kids and, and really didn't mean that much about it. But, but in one joke where I was actually making fun of my dad being kind of a 50s-style dad, I used the word. They laughed wildly at my tone of my dad's voice in that. And then as I begin to understand that once we know, we know. We can't slough off the responsibility. But but you certainly could change that word to moron, and you don't get the moron community coming after you. <laughs> to be honest, like as the audiences grew, you have to think about it more, because I will occasionally get a comment about something that I've said that I wouldn't have thought twice about. And then you have to make some choices, because it's not always right to change what you're saying if your intent was good. I had this last week. Someone sent me an email I, I do jokes about working out at the gym. It's my own story. You know, it's just my experience. I'm not pointing out anybody else. Right, right, But right. she felt like she had an eating disorder and she felt triggered by that conversation. So, yeah. you know, I do take the time to sit down and think, okay, are, are my words potentially harmful to people? But it is comedy. So, I mean, at a certain point, you think maybe... If your trigger is that sensitive, maybe comedy's not the right place. I like that. Maybe you need a posted thing. If you're allergic to comedy, please don't enter the doors. Right. <laughs> One of my favorite ones, I used to do some jokes about these dating websites. There are like 50 websites where you could meet a man who was incarcerated if you were looking you know, to meet a partner. And so I had all kinds of jokes about it. And I had a lady come up to me after a show and just say, you know, my son is incarcerated and I believe he deserves love too. And I said, how long is he incarcerated for? And she said, well, for life. And I said, okay, well, what did he do? And she said, well, he killed some children. He killed some children. And I said, and you you would hope that there's a woman out there that would find him at this point? I mean, you don't really think maybe he should just think about what he's done in singleness for <laughs> But no, she was like. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Maybe that's somebody's type. I mean, if they have a farmersonly.com, seriously, somebody told me this that's in that, I'm not in that dating world of swiping and checking boxes and stuff, but incarcerated prisoners can be on those services. So I remember a woman telling me, she's like, no more prisoners or something, meaning they got all day to flatter somebody and charm them and wait to tell them, I'm not going to be able to take you out for 10 years. There's a women's prison up by where we live. 
And incarcerated in that prison is a woman who is known as the Black Widow. She's killed, I think, three partners. And she's, you know, obviously serving life. And she's on a dating website. <laughs> so wow. liar beware. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think they even made a movie about her or something. But Jerry and I like to say we met before there was online dating. We met when you still had to meet people in line, not online. So yeah. we- Jerry's your husband, Jerry Minor, who's a, also a funny comic and a great comedy writer. I met him in Los Angeles many years ago. And I know the two of you do shows together. So what is it like to have mom and dad? Like you have children, right? You have two children? We have two children, yes. Okay. So mom's a comedian, dad's a comedian. And what happens when they smart off and how can they not be say that they're just trying to get into the family business? Well, I would say that we're very bad at discipline, Jerry and I both. (laughs) We are terrible at that. So fortunately, we have pretty well-behaved kids. They've been on the road with us a lot, which I think has been fun when, especially when they were really little, we just all traveled everywhere together. I don't know. It built a closeness in our family. We really have an appreciation for one another, but I, our daughter would say like she doesn't want anything to do with it, but she has the most amazing stage presence. She's a dancer and she really can put on a show, you know, like she can work an audience, which you might not want to tell jokes, but I see the family in you and our son. I don't know. He will occasionally try his hand at writing a joke. I always tell him I'll pay him. You know, if oh. they can write material for me and I don't have to do it, I will give them money, but they haven't come up with much yet. They are a great source of material, but, you know, I started, me in particular, when they were very young, I kind of made them a promise that I would not make fun of them on stage. I just think that would be really horrible. So when I talk about my kids, it is almost always me poking fun at my own parenting, not at them and their personalities as kids. So it has worked out every once in a while, you know, when when they're on my bad side, something sneaks its way into my act. For the most part, I keep them out of it. Because I just think, you know, that would be so terrible, I think, to grow up as a kid and your mom is just, you know, uh, especially now with social media and all the comedy gets shared and people are recording it all the time. So it's just nothing in your life is a secret. I agree. Honoring your kids or your spouse or anyone in at least in a way that is can be taken. Like you shouldn't say anything out loud in front of an audience that you don't want to show up on YouTube because (laughs) somebody will tape you. It's true now. Oh, you have to be so much more careful, right? Things could be contained in a room back when we started, but not anymore. Well, take me back to prior to being a comedian, because you just mentioned sort of on the fly that you were an engineer before you were a comedian. And I think of engineers as very much logical, structural. How do you make this bridge hold up? It's not about sarcasm or timing or whimsy. How did you make that transition? So comedy was never something that was on my radar. I wasn't a performer. It wasn't something I was looking toward. I I was at the very end of my college life. And I think it was in the last semester of engineering school. And a friend of mine He really wanted to try comedy and the extension college at the University of Washington, where I was, had a comedy class. And so he asked me to sign up for it with him. And I did. And we were, I mean, we were just having some fun. You know, it was the last semester of college and at the end of the class, but we did a show at the Comedy Underground up in Seattle, which is a super fun club. And the club owner was there, the, the manager, I guess, was there and saw me. I headlined the class, you know, which is a big deal, right? When everyone is on stage for their first time and I, I was the headliner. Kind of like graduation day, like the day when you're doing the routines, the final? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was like our class valedictorian for comedy, I guess. We call that the class clown. Right. <laughs> Hopefully they were all clowns a little bit, but I don't, he saw me do that show. He was just so encouraging to me. And he came up to me afterwards and just said, I, I don't know what it is. I think you have a knack for this. And 
I'll give you time on the weekends. I'll let you come and just practice if you want to keep doing it. I, you know, he just saw something in me and, and there was a real small community of comedy up there in Seattle at the time. And it was all men. They were so encouraging to me. And so I graduated from college. I had my first engineering job. I worked in an aerospace company and the fun trivia, I was hired into an engineering job to replace the person who had just left that job. And that person was Bill Nye, the science guy. (laughs) Wow. And he was into comedy too. Yeah. He quit to do his TV show. Uh, He got a Disney deal or whatever, and he quit and there was a vacancy and I got hired into this job out of college. It was everything you would expect an engineering job to be. And I was young and right out of college and it was all these, you know, old men, like, I mean, you know, pocket protector, short sleeve button up shirts, donuts every morning. It was all of that. (laughs) And I just think I realized really quickly it wasn't the right place for me. And fortunately, I got some opportunities really early and was able to just leave that job and and move to L.A., and I did. But I've always kind of thought, you know, I have a math brain, and I feel like joke writing is very similar to solving math problems. You have to be creative to solve a math problem. You know, when you get to higher level math, you have to kind of open your brain up a little bit and see things from different perspectives. And when you get the solution, it's a lot like writing a punchline. I, I think I've always thought that. Well, you're a great writer and a great comic. When I watch your storytelling, it always leads somewhere where you can stick the landing. And I don't think everybody can do that. I don't. I think sometimes people kind of transition to another topic. They create kind of a maze they can't get out of. But I think that you have a routining sense. I read on your website that you had done writing for other people, for Bonnie Hunt and Jack Black and Morgan Freeman. So I'm thinking... Okay, what kind of comedy was written for Morgan Freeman? I used to write for this award show in LA for the Women in Film Awards. Okay. And he was the host one year. Bonnie Hunt hosted, Jack Black hosted. Sure. There were some jokes in there, but really it was just a script. You write stuff and it's really funny when you give that to them because they're not a comedian to start with, most of these actors and people. And then they are suddenly the expert on comedy. They go, man, this isn't funny. And you go, no, I, I think it is. <laughs> I think you have to trust me because I know more than you. Yeah. And if you don't have any confidence in it, of course it won't come off funny because you'll tank it. (laughs) I think it's why I went back to the stage full time is just feeling like, oh, I want to tell these jokes. These are good jokes. I don't want them to end up on cutting room floors and I could tell them better. I guess full disclosure to the listener here, you and I have a couple of upcoming gigs and we're going to be doing a show called A Pair of Jokers, which is just you doing your act and me doing my act. But then in February, we're doing My Funny Valentine, which was always a structure for February bookings. And you've done this with your husband, Jerry. Date night shows are really fun things to do. Comedy night shows are really fun to do. So because of that, recently, we were going through some of your content on the web and other places to put together a little teaser trailer for the Palace Theater we're about to play. And so I got kind of a tour through some of your highlights, which was super fun. And then I remember your pie gaps, not thigh gaps business that that is now a t-shirt on your website. Yeah. People love that shirt. Yeah. I guess I can send them to your amyisfunny.com and they can go to the store if they want to see it. But it does help to know the routine. It does. Yeah. It was, I think it was my daughter was making a joke about some Lululemon, like, like oppression pants at Lululemon because they give you a thigh gap how to the younger generation. There's something desirable about that, which... You call it the thigh gap, which is, I'd never heard that term. So I assumed it came from your comic mind. 
I hope so. I try not to listen to too many other comics because I feel like then you start to sound like them. So my hope is always that maybe I haven't written something that someone else also wrote, but I think that's mine. No, <laughs> I know. Listen, I was a, a writer on a sitcom where Jerry Seinfeld was a known mechanic of comedy. And so you you build the cars in his shop the way he speaks. And after you've been there a while and you go off somewhere and you write a new routine, you might write a brand new thing. But you're suddenly saying, and the doorknob is thinking, I had a, a great routine about when we had to drive with our hands at 2 and 10 o'clock. I don't know if you ever do that when they would say that yeah. on a driving test, right? So I would say something about people with digital watches didn't know where to put their hands because there was no 2 and 10 o'clock. But then eventually it led to this phrase about people don't drive that way. Anyway, they drive with their thumb, their elbow, or their knee. And they've got an open handgun and liquor on the seat. It was kind of the setup. And then the punchline was, we should put the steering wheel in the back seat where the people actually know how to drive are located. And all I could hear myself was, this is a Jerry Seinfeld joke. Even though right. I was writing it, I was <laughs> writing it in his voice. You have to sometimes, as you say, go back to the stage, go back to your roots, and always be checking yourself against your own observation. I think the most dangerous thing of beginning comics is that they get their influence from the television set. Not just comics, but sometimes the commercial parody or the they make fun of a show that's already kind of quirky. And so the danger of that is that you go up on a stage with other comics and somebody goes, oh, I'm already doing a Star Trek bit. You go, yeah, we all watch that show. I ran from that. I don't even go to the newspaper, right? I just, I feel like if you're a comic that has a weekly show or you have a nightly monologue, that's your Bible right there. Go right to the newspaper and start pulling those stories out because they're going to be disposable and gone two days from now. Yes. But if you're making a career and you're traveling the country and you want a long shelf life, you'd be writing about life. I write about nostalgia because it just gets sweeter the further you get from the event. Yeah. When I was starting out in comedy, there was a comedian who was in Seattle for a long time who a lot of people might still know by the name of Mitch Hedberg. And that was when the first time I ever realized, because he has such a distinct voice. And I would hear these other comics around me go up and do jokes. And I'm like, you, you sound just like Mitch, one right after the other. And he has a very obvious, very distinct voice. And so it was really easy to copy, I think, or it just enters into your tone so easily. But I think that's where I recognized it the most. Uh, you have to be careful about that. Yeah. And Stephen Wright was a guy that when he got on The Tonight Show, it was just a powerhouse series of one-liners and very dry, but very much like you were saying about engineering and punchlines. You can study that for a certain period of time, and it doesn't mean you can write exactly like Stephen Wright, but you can start to see things the way he sees them. You can start to observe backwards assembly of where that humor comes from. I was always really impressed by him and the sheer volume of writing that he did. I've only met him one time and it, I was doing a show in Las Vegas. I was very young. I mean, it was like one of the very first real gigs I ever had was at the Riviera Comedy Club. I was doing a show and he came up to me. I was sitting down, getting ready to go up and he tapped on my arm and he said, I know this is so rude of me, but would you mind if I just went up and did like five minutes before you because... <laughs> I'm working on a special and I got to try out some material and I just really need a place to do it. And I said, well, could you wait and go after me? Because I don't really want to follow you tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but he did. He did his time and he was hilarious. And he he's just so strong. I mean, even when he was trying new material out, you know, he was very confident in it and it was fun to watch him. He has a brand new novel out 
in the context of the way he's written the novel, he's able to drop in a lot of his observational world because the main character is a kid that has all these strange thoughts in school and says things he shouldn't and really interesting. So I had just picked it up and I have not finished it, but I wish I could have told you the title. But if you look up Stephen Wright, and it, I think it's always fun to see comedians trying other mediums. When Steve Martin wrote plays or those kinds of things are really fun to watch them expand their worldview and their comedy. You've put an album out, right? No. I mean, I have a DVD or do I have a CD? I'm, does anybody do that anymore? I mean, people just watch the videos. Online. No, they don't because there's no DVD player. Yeah. That's the funny thing. So there's no no point in carting around a suitcase where they can only play it at old folks' homes. Right, exactly. Yeah, so we, I mean, we have recorded, but for the most part, everything's just going up in reels now. Oh, that's true. And you are on social media at Amy, Amy Barnes Comedy on Instagram, so folks can check out clips there, right? Yep. When you write a comic song, do you have a tendency just to start with a existing tune, or what's your approach if you're writing something custom for a, an event? How do you approach that? creative process of writing a comedy song? That's a good question. Well, first I try to learn the song, right? That's <laughs> that's really important, but it's hard to perform a song in a comedy setting. So you have to learn it really, really well, anticipating that there are going to be points where your timing is thrown off because you're interrupted by a laugh or you don't know. So you have to know the song so well. And usually it will start just because there's a hook in the song. I wrote this song, Bruno Mars, a song, you know, If I Was Your Man. And it was all about meal planning. Like all the moms were talking about. My sister-in-law had this meal plan that she would meal plan like three months out in advance and her life was so organized and um, everything ran smoothly for her kids and her house. And my life is just like chaotic all the time. And so I thought, oh, you know, if I had a plan, it just came right out of that. And sometimes you end up in trouble. You get yourself in trouble, like trying to reverse engineer that because that's the only thing that works is that one line. And then you're trying to make the whole rest of the song work and it doesn't. But I probably the biggest parody I ever wrote was I Will Survive, you know, Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive and wrote a song called I Will Deprive about losing weight. And that's probably been maybe the biggest one that I've um, done. Is that uh, living on YouTube or somewhere where? It probably is. If not, I should probably put it up there. But it, I still play that song. People still ask for that song because it's pretty, it's got a lot of jokes and it's pretty funny. Do you write together with your husband or does he pitch you jokes that he can't do? Or does he, is it proprietary where everybody in the house has their own comedy locker with their own comedy notebook? I adore my husband. He is a very good husband. We have a very good marriage. And part of the reason that we have such a good marriage is that we we have some boundaries. <laughs> we learned early on, we were doing a lot of marriage shows together as Barnes and Minor, and we would sit down and try to write together, and we would usually end up in an argument. So every once in a while, he'll throw me an idea, or I'll send one to him. But for the most part, we, we don't really write together. I know there have been couples who've done that successfully, maybe like Stiller and Mira, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to talk to them about how that worked, but our first priority is that we stay married. Uh, that's a good one. I did see you on stage together, though, at a church here in Texas. We were doing a, an, a day event. And one of the things that is great is that since you both have good comic timing, that you don't have to plan. You can kind of be married and know when to interrupt and when not to interrupt. It's, it seemed like you were at least tandem flying the plane in that particular event, <laughs> there was sort of an interdependence that you were two funny people 
that would give each other a little bit of wing space to do your thing. Yeah, no, that's true. We work well together on stage. That's always been a great show. It um, started out years ago. Someone wanted to see us do something like that. I don't know if you remember Mark Anderson. Did you know Mark Anderson? Sure. It's worth saluting him. He's he's passed, but he started those early improvs in Irvine and he gave many, many a comic a break. And then when he moved to Oklahoma, he started a different club and different theaters. And he always took a big risk on one-man shows and other things. So he was pivotal for a lot of people, including Jerry and myself, to get a stage time and try something that had never been done. Yeah, we adored Mark Anderson. Still do miss him to this day. And he was just a big champion of ours. I really wanted to see us as a team on stage, just mostly because we're very different, Jerry and I. Our styles are very different on stage. And so it's really is a true picture of a marriage, I think. We are so different. We have different strengths. Our comedy styles are very different. And so he put us on stage a lot to work that out. So it wasn't something that happened really naturally right off the bat. I mean, we both could tell jokes and we could make a show run, but getting to the point where we had timing together, where we had chemistry, we could play off each other a little bit better. That took a little bit of time, but that I think, I want to say he started that at his theater in Oklahoma, that it was the first place we were on stage. We did a show about the first year marriage called the funny mooners. That was our original show. And then he built a little theater on the side of the Tempe Improv. He leased the room or the space that was next door called the Sideshow Theater. And he built that for us to give us a place. And we were there for six weeks in Tempe and the show went really well. And then it it gave us something that just sort of launched. It was very popular for a long time and probably still would be. Uh, We just don't book ourselves quite as much anymore because of the kids. You know, it's really hard for us both to be gone when they can't come with us as much anymore. But um, we were at one point the only touring husband and wife comedy team. So I, I don't know if there's others now. I bet if you if you dug deep enough, there's somebody who's doing that in America. There was another couple that tried to do it and they were both comedians and they ended up divorced. So I... <laughs> well, I, I do think it would be stressful or hard to have your business, any kind of business that you run with somebody else and then you go home and you're at the dinner table or you're in the bed. If one person is still thinking of marketing and planning and strategizing and the other one's frustrated or needs a breather. I I think in any partnership, you got to have moments where you walk away from the table and you come back with new ideas. But if you say, hey, we had a bad day at work, I'll see you at home at dinner. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. Well, and then you're traveling together, which, you know, like that is even more time like this all the time. And thankfully, we joke about it all the time. Jerry and I get along very well. And we always had a lot of fun doing those things. I would say the primary reason we're not doing it as much now is just because of the kids. Our daughter's a senior in high school. Our son's a freshman. And we want somebody to be home with them. You know, we want them to have us around. Well, for you, who was your earliest comic influence that you remember? I remember like when I was young, the sitcoms that we were watching were like Roseanne. I always thought she was so funny. She has kind of a similar comic sense to me. She's very dry and not super excitable. I always thought she had really smart comic timing and loved her. Paula Poundstone, I I think her and Kathleen Madigan, both like just two of the smartest women working. You listen to what they write and they just are constantly churning out good material. They've both been very successful, but neither one of them rose to the like an Ellen kind of fame, but really struck me as people who just did good work all the time. And I always have loved everything I've seen them do. And so that to me, that was more of an example than maybe some of the other people that you would see or know a little bit better just because you saw the potential to really do something smart and make a career. And 
keep going over the long term. Well, one of the things I'm looking forward to is when we do My Funny Valentine in February, the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show, the audience in the lobby puts index cards out there that we let them anonymously write any questions they want about courtship or marriage or romance or dating or anything of that nature. The very first time I did it, I was surprised how once you've done your act and I've done my act and they get to know us, then that business where you get to riff or ad lib is so great because they can't wait to see if you're witty, what you're going to do. And most people would stack that box with something they did in the show before. To me, that's not the fun of it. The fun of it is surf the wave that's coming at you. Uh, Admittedly, sometimes those cards can be similar about how do I get my wife to do this? Or how do I get my husband to do that? You know, those kinds of things will come up. But it is kind of funny that when you allow people to write anonymous questions, they'll get kind of honest because their partner may not know and they want to know, first of all, they want to get a rise out of the comics, but also sometimes it's bittersweet. Somebody will say, can you still find love at 75 or something? And you kind of go, well, we're not really therapists. Like this, We're in no way qualified to give <laughs> right. advice. So I'm- <laughs> Right. Please don't put your deepest, darkest secret in the box. Right. I mean, I think also there should be a screen behind us with a hotline or something, right? Like, like, we're not the right people. Call that number. Right. 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 That's funny. I've moved this into my act because it's so funny. I got a card once that said, can you tell me how to get my wife to do the dishes naked? They just laughed at me reading the question, which gave me just enough time to think of saying that you put on some soft music light candles, and then draw a warm bath. When she lowers into the tub, you throw the dishes in. And they just howled. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is like, that's like a gem. And so I didn't ever put it back in the show. I was like, I wrote that joke. I'm putting that in my own act. Keep the joke, yeah. I mean, some of the best material comes out of that, right? Just out of the, in the moment. Yeah. Just as you said, you didn't make fun of your kids. You tried to honor them in many ways. I was not big on making fun of anything when I was married. And I was hesitant when I was separated and divorced. I thought, well, I don't want this floating around. As some distance got away from it, I realized, oh, okay, well, I can make fun of myself in that context. I often say that I thought I was a catch, but it turns out I'm a catch and release. It was one of those things where you go, okay, I'm not making fun of her. But I think the further you get from a thing, you kind of go, what are the boundaries of what I'm just trying to do to lighten the load for everybody here, you know? Have you done this before? Like you were on stage with someone else and did took questions? Yeah, yeah, a number of times. So the My Funny Valentine show you're coming into with me is something that I've done over a seven or eight year period. And so I've had a couple of different partners in that show. But I do think the Q&A thing is it's a structure that I think stand-up comics do when they're, and you see this a lot on Instagram, when they kind of go to the crowd, they do crowd work. It's just a form of structured crowd work. Because one of the good news about the card method is that people will write horrible things too. And you can read them and go, yep, I'm not reading that out loud. But when you read it, you go, oh, dear Lord, this is not right. And then it's anonymous, so you can't go, who wrote this? You just have to kind of go, you're not tricking me into saying these words. I really love to do crowd work. It's one of my favorite things about live comedy because you're giving them something, you know, you make them a part of the show and then, you know, they're experiencing something that that you can't ever experience again, right? What happened in that room that night. Unfortunately, with a lot of the shows I do now, they're so big that you can't really talk to the crowd because no one can hear them. And so you, you end up excluding the rest of the room from the conversation unless it goes really quickly. But 
usually I end up in a conversation with someone with they start telling a story and you can't get them to stop and the whole rest of the room can't hear them. So I love to have the kind of environment where you could do that. And the cards seem like a good way to do it because you're doing the crowd interaction, but you don't have to. The other thing that's funny is people will smoke themselves out because they'll giggle when you read it or something. You go, oh, Oh. I guess you might have written this. Yeah, they got to tell like a poker player, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that happens around Valentine's, oftentimes there's things about what's the best a Valentine's card. Can you tell my husband not to take me out with a coupon? They're very funny, kind of almost it's like the complaint department. And one guy, because of their age, said that he's really practical now. I think they've been 45 years married or something. And he says that he takes the woman to a Hallmark store, picks out a card, has her read it. She puts it back in the rack and they go out to lunch. That's Jerry's joke. Jerry does that joke. Is it? Yeah, because cards are so expensive. He says, here, read this one. That's a funny one. Oh, funny. All right. Well, maybe this old guy stole that from Jerry. We haven't done it in a long time. That was when we used to tour as Barnes and Minor. We used to do that. My folks, I noticed that their gift giving and stuff went was significantly downsized the longer they got married. So they'd be splitting a soup and sandwich, and that counted as a gift to each of them. Yeah. I've got an anniversary coming up. Oh, good. Well, that will help with that good marriage you have if you can <laughs> figure out what day that is. You know how I remember what day it is? Uh, we got married on November 10th. And Jerry sends me a text message every day at 1110. Oh. Yeah. So that's I pretty sweet. Forget. Yeah. He is a rememberer. Happy anniversary coming up. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether this will air before or after your anniversary. If it airs before, everybody send me a reminder to get him. Yes. <laughs> I'll look for those DMs on 11.9. Yeah. So for those who want to know more about Amy, go to amyisfunny.com and you'll get an eyeful there. There's some great videos And also, you can check her out on Amy Barnes Comedy on Instagram. We'll be out on the road with a pair of jokers very soon. And then My Funny Valentine in 2024. Thank you for spending a little time today. And uh, I wish you continued success on your career. Thanks for having me, Pat. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.